All right. Seth, if you could pull up the Prezi. I actually have a lot to talk about this morning, believe it or not. So I'm going to be uh, working fast. So I want to encourage you uh, to put your listening ears on, your thinking hats on, and uh, as we engage the Word of God this morning, you see this amazing, magnificent plant here? It's something to behold, isn't it? Yeah, I get some chuckles and a yeah right in there. This is my favorite plant. This right here is my favorite plant in the world. So i got to tell you the story why. Um, anybody shop at Ikea? we have any Ikea shoppers in here? My wife is an Ikea shopper. And when we moved from Lebanon, Pennsylvania to Drexel Hill to uh, lead the church plant of Drexel Hill Church a number of years ago, she was so excited because we finally lived close to an Ikea. And, and so uh, when we moved into the parsonage in Drexel Hill, of course, one of the first things we did was got in our van and drove to Ikea. And one of the great things about Ikea is they have free child care. And so you can drop your kids off and you can walk around and drink a cup of coffee. And it's wonderful. And so we were in Ikea and uh, we were looking at stuff to furnish uh, our, our new home that we were moving into. And in the bottom uh, corner, when you get down to the basement, they have all these little plants in there. You know what I'm talking about? Um, and they have all these house plants uh, that you can buy. And, of course, uh, Julie sees them. Ooh, I want that one. And that one's so cute. And I, I can see that one here and there. And um, so I just asked her, well, would you pick one out for my new office? And I'll, I'll, I'll put it in my office. And so uh, this, this little plant uh, was the plant she picked out um, and helped me pick it out. And we bought this little pot. Um, and when it started... It was just about uh, two or three leaves, and it's not much more than that at this point, but it was just two or three leaves um, in this pot, and I set it on a glass table in my office in Drexel Hill, and it sat there, and it didn't move uh, for, for the three and a half years we were there, and it just got a little bit of sunlight, and I watered it once a week, and that was it. That was what she told me to do. She said, once a week, give this thing a little bit of water. That's all you got to do. So I put, it, I put it on this glass table, and Tuesday morning was my first day in the office each week. So the first thing I'd do faithfully was I'd fill up a little water bottle or a little pitcher, and then I'd, I'd give it a drink, and I'd, I'd let it go. And it was incredible. Over the three years, this little guy, and Julie's my witness for this. This is true. This, this little guy slowly started to grow. And, it was, you know, just like growth of anything, it was a growth that you can't see moment by moment or day by day. It's only over time that you can remember back, oh, remember when that thing was so little? And it grew and grew and grew. And over the three years, it extended these beautiful arms and it started to curl around the table in different ways and shoot out towards the sunlight um, in different ways. And it was this magnificent, huge plant coming out of this tiny little pot. I kid you not, when I tried to pick it up when we were moving, I had to gather the whole thing and throw it over my shoulder. And, and these vines that were coming out were falling down uh, behind my back and I was almost tripping on them. Unfortunately, when I moved it, it suffered. And, and uh, I thought it was dead, but my wife has been nourishing it and bringing it back to life, and it sits in our hallway um, at our house here in East Coventry now. And so I look at it, and I remember to pray, because this, for me, was the picture, the prophetic, beautiful picture of Drexel Hill Church, this replant um, being planted and growing. And as this plant grew and flourished, 
as it spread its little vines and wings out and embraced life and, and spread itself out so beautifully. It was this, at the same time, we were walking out the Drexel Hill church plant. And when we started the church plant, we were down to about 12 people. The church had almost died and there was nothing left but ashes and carnage. And out of the chaos and out of the rubble, this little sprout started. And we saw this, this church plant begin to grow and people begin to come to the Lord and people begin to grow in relationship. And so this thing became this beautiful picture of Drexel Hill Church flourishing. And every day when I would go into my office and I would look at that, I would remember what it was like before and what it had become just by a little bit of water once a week. That's it. That's all it took, sunlight and a little bit. Of water. This morning, as we look at Acts chapter 11, I was reminded of this this week, this, this plant and this picture, because this passage, as much as any passage that I can think of in the New Testament, is about the church flourishing, about a plant growing, about life coming in. So this morning, I want to look at what does it mean to flourish. This is just a simple English definition of flourishing. Uh, if you, if you, you know, go to dictionary.com and type in flourishing, this is what it'll say. It's of a person, an animal, or another other living organism. So a church, a church is a living organism. It's the people of God. It's not, the church is not a building. It's God's people. So it's of a, a person, animal, or other living organism to grow or develop in a healthy or vigorous way, especially as the result of a particularly favorable environment. Does God want that for you? That was pathetic. Does God want that for you? Yes. Does God want that for his church? Yes, he wants us to flourish. He wants his people to grow and develop in healthy and vigorous ways, especially as a result of particularly favorable environments. How do children flourish? By mom and dad creating particularly favorable environments environments. So it causes flourishing. Well, the, the antithesis, the opposite of flourishing is to languish. And uh, to languish, it's of a person or another living thing, just like flourishing, but it means to lose or lack vitality, to grow weak or feeble, to suffer from being forced to remain in an unpleasant place or situation. In other words, an unfavorable environment causes languishing. Now, when I moved this plant from its favorable environment and I tried to put it in a new environment, it got very upset and it languished. Look at this sad little plant. What, what was once so beautiful, but it's coming back. In the same way, people languish and they flourish based on, on where we are, who we're with, what we're putting into ourselves, what we're eating, what we're drinking, how we're spending our time. These are all parts of flourishing. So when I think about, and this is not an exhaustive list, this is just DJ, pastor, I've thought about this, prayed about it, read about it, the, off the top of my head, what is a list of things that are necessary for the people of God and for a church to flourish? Uh, these, are, these are some of the main ingredients that I think that the scriptures lay out 
for what it looks like for God's people to flourish. So I want to ask you the question this morning, are you flourishing? When you look and think about your life, and specifically when you look and think about your soul, are you flourishing? God wants you to flourish. Are you flourishing? So what's required for us to flourish? Well, the, the first and most obvious thing is in order to flourish, you have to be alive. Amen? Am I right? You ever seen a dead tree flourish? No. no, of course not. You have to be alive to flourish. How do the people of God in Christ have life? Well, through the Spirit. Through our Spirit and God's Spirit. So we have to be filled with the Spirit. In order, in order to be flourishing... The primary element, the primary uh, ingredient for, for a flourishing life, a flourishing church, is to be filled with God's Spirit. If you are filled with God's Spirit, then you are filled with life. If, you're filled, if a church is filled with God's Spirit, then it's filled with the main ingredient for flourishing. We also need to be fed. Regular access to nourishment is vital to flourishing. If someone does not eat or drink over extended periods of time repeatedly or doesn't get the vitamins and nutrients that are required for life, they're going to languish. And it's the same for your soul. If your soul is not fed with the nutrients that God designed your soul to feast on in order to flourish, you will languish. It will happen. If you drink soda and that's all you ever drink, your teeth will rot, you'll get diabetes, and you'll be very unhealthy. You will languish. This is how it works for our bodies, right? For our souls, it's the same thing. If we're, if we're drinking the equivalent of Pepsi day and night within our souls, we're going to languish because we're not feasting upon nourishing food and drink. So, so regular access to nourishment is absolutely necessary to flourishing. Well, for the people of God, that's His Word. Daily, we come to His Word and we feast on it. Night and day, we meditate on it. We sing, we gather together. I know I'm fed when I get together with a brother or sister in Christ and I spend time, meaningful time with them. That's one of the main ways that I'm fed. Another, another necessary ingredient is to be connected or to be active exercising and stretching. So to have a a healthy body, you need exercise. It's the same for our souls and spirit. To have a healthy soul and spirit, you have to be active and exercising. And and if you're at a a point in life where, where you have physical ailments, that doesn't mean that your spirit can't be alive and active and, and stretching and growing. One of, um, one of my heroes in, in the faith, and I was thinking about this story, and I was fact-checking with my parents, because they were here this week to make sure I was remembering this correctly, but one of, one of my heroes um, from my life was a man named Bob Widbin, who uh, was a, a longtime pastor, and growing up in St. Louis at my home church, at Hope Church in St. Louis, he, he had retired and come, and he was on staff, just kind of uh, emeritus, um, and, and he would spend time ministering to people uh, just in his retirement. Amazing man of God. He was, he was uh, on the beaches of Normandy on D-Day, that kind of guy. Lived this incredible life, served the Lord his, his whole life. And I remember him telling me one time, I think I asked him, how do, you, how do you spend your time? And one of the things he said was every single day 
he would get up and the first thing he would do as he spent time with the Lord, he would get out the church phone book. And this wasn't a tiny church. I mean, it wasn't a huge church, but it, it wasn't a small church. He would get out the church phone book and throughout the day, person by person, name by name, he would pray for every single person in the church. This is, this is an older gentleman past the prime of his life. Physically, he couldn't run marathons. He certainly couldn't storm Normandy anymore. And yet his spirit and his soul were flourishing and active because he pursued the Lord and he fed himself. And he, he was a picture of what it means to flourish in life as much as anyone I've ever met. The kind of guy that when, when I'm that age, I hope I'm half the man that he was uh, as he served and, and pursued the Lord. It's also necessary, absolutely necessary for us to be connected. We're to be in Christ and in community. A soul cannot flourish on its own. God did not design us that way. A human soul cannot flourish in isolation. Has, has anyone done any... Uh, have you ever read about the huge, magnificent redwoods in California, what their roots do underneath the ground that causes them to be able to grow so tall? Underneath the, underneath the surface of the ground, what... what uh, biologists have found is that the roots of redwoods stretch out and they interlock with one another and they connect and so one tree is anchored to the next which is anchored to the next which is anchored to the next and so underneath even though they look so magnificent and they seem isolated above the surface underneath they are locked in together what an incredible picture for how God designed us to be we cannot flourish and grow towards the heavens, grow towards the presence of God without underneath being connected to one another, supporting one another. Man, I experienced this in my life the last couple months. I went through a tough fall season. My, my family was hit from every which way, financially, health, spiritually. We were just hammered over and over and over again. And what happened was community began to gather around us and began to reach out a hand. And underneath the surface, even, at, even up top while the winds were beating us, underneath they began to put their arms around us and say, we got you. We got you in this season. And so we flourish because we're connected with one another. That is God's design. You will languish if you are on your own. The winds will blow and your tree will topple. God made us to grow. And to flourish is to grow. It's in the very definition of, of, of flourishing. It means we're always learning and developing. There's a time when our bodies stop growing, but our souls are never meant to stop growing. Ever. That's one of the things I appreciated about Miss Shirley, that I appreciate about her so much. When I'm sitting with her last week, she's close to the end of her life, she says to me, I can't comprehend, DJ, the love of God. She's got a whole lifetime behind her. And her thought for the day is, I cannot comprehend the love of God. It's a flourishing life. Not stop growing, not stop pursuing God's love. A flourishing life is others focused. One of the most popular phrases among millennials right now is the phrase self-care. Have you heard that? Millennials love the concept of self-care. And that's fine, that's good. We should be caring for ourselves. But not at the expense of like, this is what my life is, caring for myself. 
No, no. God did not make me for me. God made me for you and for him and for me. It's both all the time. And so self-care is important, certainly. But our focus is to be on others. This is why the word of God says, think of others more highly than you think of yourself. Think of others more highly than you think of yourself. We're to be others focused, seeking the welfare of other people. I have some friends um, who own a photography business, not the Morbys, although they are my friends and they own a great business, but they own a a photography business out in California. And uh, she wrote this post recently. It's someone I grew up with that I really respect. And she said, you know, the first 10 years of our business, we were so focused on growing our business and we didn't want to share any of our information with anyone else because we were scared they would steal our clients and steal our business. And so we were just building our own little kingdom and focused on, on hoarding our own information, our own secrets and our own leads. And she says in this post how wrong we were in that mindset because what we found is that the more that we share what God gives to us. The more that we share those secrets and share the information that we've learned, the more our business flourishes and grows. And I thought that was such a cool testimony to how we are made to be in the kingdom. And that works the same in the church. When the church is so territorial and worried about, that's my, that, those are our sheep and that's my, you know, this is my neighborhood, whatever. Like we languish. The church languishes. But when the church can look out and, and be sharing information and, and sharing kingdom goals and sharing focus with one another, that's when the church flourishes. And that's why we're so passionate about Netzer. Amen? What Netzer does is as we seek a connection in the regional church. We need to be others focused. We need to be bearing fruit. A, a, a flourishing life bears fruit. Because it's filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit has fruit. When you abide in Jesus and he abides in you, you bear much fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, J-P-P-K-G-F-G-S-C. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. A flourishing life bears that fruit. A flourishing life is also present, and this is one of the most tricky ones for the time and the age and the culture that we live in. A flourishing life is a person who's able to be present in the moment. Anybody else struggle with this? With your phones and your screens and your busy schedule? A flourishing life is someone who's able to stop and be present. Jesus modeled this so incredibly. You think of all the times Jesus was going somewhere really important and he got interrupted. Did he get angry and upset? That his schedule was falling apart? No, of course not. He's going to heal Jairus' daughter. And he's on his way. And suddenly he feels power come out of him. Whatever that must have been like. So he feels power come out of him. And he looks around and there's this huge crowd. And he said, somebody touched me. His disciples say, of course somebody touched you. Look around you. He said, no, somebody touched me. Like on purpose. And he looks down and he sees the woman who's been bleeding nonstop for years and years and years. And spent all her money. He doesn't just keep going. He stops. He's present. He's able, he's able to be present, focused in the moment with the woman despite being the most important, most ridiculously busy person on the face of the earth. Stop. Be present. See the woman and be with her. A flourishing life is someone who can stop and be present 
I really struggle with this. And this is just real, real talk, confession. Like on a Sunday morning, I'm thinking about 50 things at any given moment. This needs to happen. This needs to be said. This person needs to be cared for. This person needs to be prayed for. we got to do this, this, and this, and cover this. And then people are talking to me. And it's so easy for me to be like, uh-huh, 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 and thinking about like the next thing that needs to happen. we got to start. we got to go. we got a time frame. Whatever. Man, the Spirit convicts me so often. Would you just stop and look at my child and listen? Service, whatever. I'll take care of that. Be present. Be present. This is something I'm, I'm trying to learn and grow in. But a flourishing life is someone who can be present and in the moment. And finally, and this is related, uh, a flourishing person is someone who's at rest, who has shalom, peace, body, mind, and spirit. And this is something I, I struggle with too, having peace and being at rest in the midst of craziness. But that's, that's necessary for a flourishing life. Now, how each of these elements look in your life are going to be different than mine. And that's the beauty of how God designed us. So what it looks like for Jared to flourish is not what it looks like for me to flourish. So when you see seven steps to flourishing that look exactly like this, you can outright reject that. It's probably seven steps that lead to flourishing in the author's life. But these are the ingredients. These are, the, these are some of the ingredients, the main ingredients that the scriptures lay out. But, but it looks different for different people. So for me, what it means to be connected with others is going to be different than what it looks like for you to be connected with others. I'm an extrovert. So connecting for me is not an exhausting thing. It builds me up. If I don't connect with others, I feel like I'm languishing. My dad is an introvert. When he's overconnected, he begins to languish because he needs rest and time alone. And I, I need that too, but it's different because we're different people. So I'm not trying to prescribe you with a one-size-fits-all thing. Far from it. I'm saying these are ingredients. One of those red trees in California, it needs water, right? And it needs sunshine. This needs water and sunshine, but in very different amounts. If this got the sunshine and, and the water that a redwood required, this would die. And if that redwood got the water and the sunshine that this required and nothing more, it would die. So flourishing is, is not a one-size-fits-all thing. It's a custom thing because you are a custom-designed person. God didn't make you like anyone else. He made you you. How beautiful is that? I'm so glad you're you and not me. I can't stand being around myself so many times. I'm so glad I get to be around you. I'm sure you can relate to that. So are we flourishing? And again, this is not an exhaustive list. This is not a prescription. These are some of the ways that the scriptures talk about what it means to flourish. And we're going to see that in the scripture. Well, we see that in Genesis 1, before we get to Acts, God's heart for flourishing. Think about that picture of flourishing. The right environment leads to growth, leads to beauty, teeming life. This is what God says in Genesis 1 about his flourishing creation. He says, and God said, let the water swarm with swarms. Your translation might say team. Let it team, let it swarm, let there be schools of fish and movement. You ever see the swallow, uh, what, are, what are the birds that do the like crazy dance in the air? You know what I'm talking about? What are, what are those, swallows or... Yeah, they're like teeming, they're moving, they're swarming. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And skipping down, it says in verse 22, and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. 
He's saying, flourish. That's what he's saying. God's looking at it. He's blessing creation. He's saying, flourish. And there was evening and there was morning. The fifth day, he says the same thing. And God said in verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. It was good. When God made creation, he said, it's good. It's so good. Then God said, listen to what he says about humans. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock. This is not domination. Dominion is not domination. We are not to dominate. We are to rule in order to cause flourishing. When you dominate something, you end up killing it. Although I say that to my kids all the time. Every single day I say, I'm going to dominate you. That's the phrase I say to my kids. I'm going to dominate you. I'm not going to kill them. I love my kids. I want them to flourish. God says, have dominion over the earth. Cause it to flourish over every creeping thing. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. He blessed them. I don't know if you feel like God wants to just look at you and say, you are good and I bless you. But this is God's heart for creation. You're good how I designed you, child. And I bless you. I'm not talking about the fall and sin. I'm not talking about health and wealth or shallow psychology. I'm talking about your image of God. How he created you to be redeemed in Jesus Christ. He looks at you and he says, that is good. And I bless you. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed. What a beautiful picture of flourishing. And then, of course, what does he do the seventh day? He kicks it, sits back, relaxes, and he rests and he enjoys his flourishing creation. Oh, I long for that day. Don't you? When that's what we do, we sit back and we rest with God. We rest with Jesus and we enjoy his flourishing creation in the new kingdom. Jesus, we long for that day. So are we flourishing? Now moving to Acts 11, as we look at this passage, and it's not a long one, so don't worry. I know I've done a long introduction here. As we read Acts 11, I want you to ask these three questions. What causes the church to flourish in Acts chapter 11? What causes the church to really flourish and grow? Because it does, and it's beautiful. What promotes flourishing in the lives of individuals And what increases flourishing in the kingdom? So in Acts chapter 11, I'm going to pick up in verse 18, which is the verse before. It's right when Peter is giving the report of Cornelius coming to Christ. And the response of the Jerusalem church, they say, when they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And thank goodness for that, because that's why we're here. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered, you remember Stephen had been martyred. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And look what it says. It says, speaking the word to no one but the Jews. So this had taken place before Peter has had his, um, his, his vision and the experience with Cornelius. 
But man, I love a good but in the scriptures. When it says, however, or it says, but, it's so good. So they were speaking only to the Jews. But there were some of them. This is so cool. God's spirit stirred in such a way. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. There were some of them stirred by the Spirit of God who on their own, because of God working in them, began to preach to the Gentiles. And so God's confirming what he did through Peter through this other group. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Let the same thing be said about us in Jesus, that the hand of the Lord would be with us, turning many to the Lord. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So just like when they heard about Peter and they wanted to find out about it, now they're hearing about this. So they sent Barnabas to Antioch. This is the third time we've encountered Barnabas one of Luke's heroes in Acts. The first time is in Acts chapter 4 when we're introduced to him and it says this about him. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that they were sharing belonged to him but they shared everything in common and there was great power and with great power that the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of the lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. And then it introduces us to Barnabas. It says, thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So that's how we're introduced to Barnabas. He sells this field and he brings the money and he puts it at the apostles' feet and he's so encouraging that the apostles change his name. You're not Joseph, you're Barnabas. You're the encourager. The next time we hear about Barnabas is a few chapters later, right after Saul has come to the Lord. Saul has had his experience on the road to Damascus. And he, um, in Damascus, he begins to preach the gospel. And they try, the Jews try to kill him. And so he escapes. He goes down into Arabia. And then he goes to Jerusalem. And it says, and when he had come to Jerusalem, this is chapter 9, verse 26, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were afraid. But Barnabas, here he is again, but Barnabas, the son of encouragement, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord. So Barnabas gives, gives what he has, shares generously with the church. He's renamed Son of Encouragement, and now he's a part of this church that's happening in Jerusalem, and he's the one who brings Saul to the church. He's the one who connects Saul to the apostles, and he brings them and says, no, this is legitimate. This man has met the Lord. This is the real deal. And now Barnabas is encouraging the apostles. And here we hear of Barnabas again, the report of what was happening in Antioch came to the church, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, have you ever seen the grace of God in someone's life? You can see God's grace in people's lives. You see it. I hope that that God, people can see God's grace in my life and your life. When he had seen the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted, he encouraged them. That's who he is. All to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Now look at this, this is so cool. 
So Barnabas, seeing what's happening in Antioch, he thinks, I'm going to make this even better. And so what he does is he goes up to Tarsus, verse 25, to look for Saul. Saul had been in Tarsus probably for about 10 years at this point, after he left Jerusalem. Barnabas remembers him. Remember, he's the one who introduced him to the apostles. Now he thinks to himself, you know what this church could use? This church could use whatever God is doing in Saul, because that is awesome. So I'm going to go get him. I'm going to bring him down. So he goes all the way up to Tarsus and gets Saul and brings him all the way back down to Antioch. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So this is where the term Christian comes from. And scholars think that it was from that it was probably a derogatory term at first, making fun of these believers. And so other Gentiles are viewing what's happening in the Antioch church, and they see something, and they begin to call them little Christians, little Christs, Christians. And it's in Antioch that this happens. Before I get there, this is, this is, this is a church flourishing because the people are being nourished, filled with the Spirit, and living in the environment that God has for them, with the ingredients that God has for them. Sharing, praying. It doesn't say that they shared everything in common like the Jerusalem church, because they're not the same church. It's not a one-size-fits-all recipe for flourishing. The Jerusalem church, in order for them to flourish, the people apparently had to share everything and hold everything in common. That was the ingredient that God had for them at that time, in that space. For this church, it's a little bit different. Different people, different church, same God. Barnabas is encouraging them, strengthening them, and causing them to flourish. In Drexel Hill Church, I haven't told this story here before, I'll tell it quickly. When we went there, uh, it was just a handful of people when we started, and it quickly became apparent to me that in order for this church to flourish, there were a few ingredients that I couldn't offer personally that were needed. So we began to pray that God would send other leaders to help us. And in the meantime, I was developing this friendship with Brandon Hanks, who was pastoring down in Wilmington, Delaware. And, and Brandon Hanks shared with me, we were good friends, and he shared with me, God is ending my time in Wilmington and calling me somewhere else, and I have no idea what it is. And immediately in the moment, I was just so sure of it. I didn't say it because I wanted to pray about it first, but I was so sure God's calling you to Drexel Hill. And I just felt it with every fiber of my being. So I went home and I prayed about it for about a month. And the next time I was with him, <laughs> true conversation, I sat down with Brandon and I said to him, Brandon, are you still feeling called somewhere else? And he said, yes. And I said, I'd like you to pray about Drexel Hill Church. I can't pay you. I don't have a job for you. And I don't have anywhere for you to live. <laughs> and he said, okay, I'll pray about it. I said, you can laugh in my face if you want to. And he's like, let's go tell my wife. And, and he said, I'm pretty sure that God's not calling me to do that, but let's go tell my wife. So we went back to his house, and I told Katrina the same thing. Katrina, I love you. I've had this on my heart for a month. I want you to think about moving to Drexel Hill. I have nowhere for you to live, and I have no job for your husband. And the church certainly can't pay them. They can't even pay me. And she laughed at me. About a month later, I got a call from Brandon, and he said, yeah, I'm pretty sure God wants me to take that seriously. Brandon and Katrina, they moved their family with no job, no place to live, to Drexel Hill, to, to the area. He found a job. He made it work. And he sacrificed unbelievably to cause that church to flourish. It's like Barnabas. And he worked a job that was 
like, it was awful. I mean, the job he worked was awful. And every day he went and it was just like, I don't want to be here, but I'm doing it because I know God's called me to do this. And Drexel Hill is flourishing. It's flourishing because of many reasons, but it's flourishing largely because Brandon and Katrina said yes to the Lord in a difficult situation. And now God opened the door when I came here where Brandon is, is their, their lead pastor now. And so God had that all lined up and we had no idea about that at the time. It's beautiful when God works among his people to cause flourishing when we care for one another. We're going to see another picture of this really quickly. In verse 27, it says, Now, the, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem starts to send prophets down to serve the church in Antioch, or up, actually. So it says, prophets begin to come up to the church in Antioch to serve. In verse 28, and one of them named Agabus. I love that name. I wish I would have thought of it for one of my sons. Agabus. Agabus, come here. Agabus, make your bed. Doesn't this sound good? Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. It's filled with the Spirit and praying, and he realizes people are going to suffer. There's going to be a lack of resources. And so, look at this. It's so beautiful, church. The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So people they've never met. People they've never met. And so, to the extent that they can't, they collect And they give, and they did so, verse 30, sending it to the elders by the hand of who? Barnabas, there he is again, being who he's meant to be in the kingdom. Barnabas. And he's like discipling Saul at this point. And Saul's going to take the lead on their missionary journey, and Saul's going to get the glory. And and Saul's going to go down as the great missionary and apostle of the church. But if there's no Barnabas, there is no Saul. If there's no Barnabas, there is no Paul. God used this man to bless the church and to bless his brother. And then this same picture dominates how Paul thinks about ministry from this time forward. Because he then takes, he spends so much of his time, and you can read about it in First and Second Corinthians and Colossians, about the offering that they take for the church in Jerusalem. And so uh, Paul's going to reproduce this model among the other churches as he plants churches and say, we need to collect, to give, and to share. And so what causes the church to flourishing is being other, others-focused. We see these things. They're filled with the Spirit. They have good teaching as the prophets and the apostles and Barnabas and Saul are teaching. They're active. They're exercising and stretching their faith. They're connected with one another in community. They're growing. They're learning what it's like to be Christians. They're others focused. They're not worried about their own buildings. They're worried about the kingdom of God expanding. We see the fruit of the Spirit pouring out from them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They're present. They're in the moment available. God says they're going to be a famine. They hear it. They listen. They're able to be present. And there's peace, body, mind, and spirit. God desires the same thing for us today. He desires the same thing for Parker Ford Church, for Drexel Hill Church, for Branch Life Church, for North Point, for you, for me. 
that we would flourish in the kingdom of God. And it only happens when we're interconnected, filled with the Spirit, focused on Him. Dan, team, you can come back up. We're going to end with one of my favorite songs, and we've never sung it here. We've never sung it here at Parker Ford Church, so it'll be new, but that's okay. New things are good. And this song, when I think about flourishing my own soul, my spirit, this is one of the songs that I'm singing in my heart and my spirit about the love of God, about being connected to Him, about being swept away in His presence. So would you join me in prayer as we transition and just invite God to seal these things in our hearts and minds. Thank <laughs> you.